This episode of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future is sponsored by WBEX. The 13th annual WBEX Pre-Summit by Coaching.com is now live. This event offers 40 live virtual sessions over the course of three weeks from top thought leaders in coaching and attracts 30,000 coaches, managers, and HR leaders each year. Information at Coaching.com. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Maura Ahrens-Mealy, author of the new book, The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears Into Your Leadership Superpower. Maura, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to give our listeners any kind of background before we jump into a conversation about your book? I joke that I'm a recovering political consultant. I spent many years working in politics in Washington, D.C., and then running my own business called Women Online, where we created issue advocacy, behavior change campaigns, and social impact campaigns that mobilized women. I've worked on three presidential campaigns and for hundreds of some of the most incredible institutions out there. I sold that business two years ago. I've really decided to devote the second half of my life to helping anxious leaders thrive and to improving workplace mental health. I probably don't need to tell you that there's a crisis of mental health in our country. We spend the majority of our time at work. The pandemic erased any illusion that we have that work and home are separated, but workplaces really need to figure out how to be better around mental health and help people get what they need. So the Anxious Achiever is that project. We aired a podcast recently where our guest talked about his suicidal ideation. We're seeing it not just in young folks, we're seeing it across the spectrum. It is the topic right now. I mean, the truth is anxiety and depression are the number one reason why people miss work. So even if your employer doesn't care how you feel, they need to care about your mental health. The good news is I think companies get it. I spend a lot of time talking to all different kinds of organizations and they want to do better. But as you know, it's a very complex thing. What advice do you give a leader who's feeling anxious, whether or not their company cares? I show up to work and I'm struggling with all of the things, imposter syndrome, pressures at home, trying to figure out just how to navigate the basics of life that got harder. Anxiety is one of our most ancient and fundamental emotions. You could argue that anxiety has kept us as a species alive. Anxiety is an anticipation of threat. It is a response to a perceived threat. What happens with us is when we work in extremely uncertain and scary times, when we've been through a terrifying global pandemic when our country seems to not make sense anymore for many of us. And when work demands and financial demands are more intense than ever, we feel in a constant state of threat. The future doesn't feel good. We're anticipating something bad. And of course, we bring stories with us. We bring our past hurts and maybe even our natural proclivity to feeling anxious. So anxiety is extremely common and it's extremely normal right now. Our brains are wired to keep us alive and keep us safe. How do we help people modulate the thing that keeps us safe and alive with not throwing us over on the other side of such anxiety that we can't function effectively? That's the issue, right? And that's what the book is really about. 
Anxiety, like all of mental health, exists on a spectrum, right? And at the lower end of the spectrum is clinical anxiety disorders, right? And that is when you are feeling like your anxiety is getting in the way of living your life. Maybe you're having panic attacks. Maybe you are having phobias. Maybe you can't see people or leave your room or do your job. If that's you right now, I really, really ask you to please try to get professional help. The good news is that because anxiety is so common, there are great treatments for it. And I'm happy to share my own personal story. And in the middle is the moderate anxiety that most of us feel right now, which we talked about, which is like, oh my God, what is going on? Am I even going to have a job tomorrow? (laughs) Right? Am I going to be the next one? Am I good enough? all these feelings that happen to us. And at the far end of the spectrum is good anxiety. And not only has anxiety kept us alive, anxiety motivates us. If we learn, we can capture the energy, the focus, the drive that anxiety provides, and we can use it. And that takes work and it takes skill. So I think it's really important for people to understand the full spectrum of anxiety and to understand that various treatments are out there, no matter how your anxiety shows up. You mentioned your own story. I would love for our listeners to hear what you went through, because I think so often we can feel isolated, like we're defective, and we're the only ones who are having these experiences. So it would help for people to hear that they're not alone. Oh my gosh, you're not alone. It's funny. Two nights ago, I was giving a talk at our local NPR affiliate and I was sitting actually on stage in my fancy dress and my fancy outfit talking about my cocktail of antipsychotic medication. And I think that that's really important. My whole mission with The Anxious Achiever is to interview very successful people and ask them their stories and how they manage through. So I was first diagnosed at age 19. I was so anxious, I could not leave my dorm room. I was very, very depressed. I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, clinical anxiety, and then ultimately with what we now call bipolar 2, which means I go up. I come down. It's not as intense as the bipolar one that many people are familiar with, but it is intense. And so I've spent the majority of my adult life managing my mental health. It has really forced me to work differently and take my mental health extremely seriously. Therapy, psychiatry, medication management, meditation, exercise, community, all the things But I had a panic attack three nights ago. It just came on. I don't know why. And I think that that's life for a lot of us. And we don't hide it. We don't drink it away. We don't yell at people or control or micromanage. We learn to deal with it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sorry that you have to navigate it. I'm also grateful that you're willing to share it because to your point, there are a lot of people who don't know that they have someone who's traveled this journey and can role model that they can be successful. This is a thing to manage, not a thing that will take over your life. It might take over your life. I call it a double-edged sword in the book and there's a tension. I mean, For me and a lot of the anxious achievers that I interview or people who've struggled with all kinds of mental illness, they sort of credit the anxiety, maybe even the hypomania, the whatever, for turning them into who they have become. You know, for any of us who sort of face hard things and come out the other side, it gives us 
gifts. It gives us empathy and compassion and resiliency and all kinds of amazing skills. But when you're in it, it can be, as you mentioned, your recent guest, it can be the absolute worst. So you can't sugarcoat mental health, but you can manage it and push through. And my anxiety is my companion. Honestly, we talk all day long. (laughs) And sometimes I tell it, you're done here. You're not welcome. Go away. And sometimes I say like, let's do this, right? I've been on book tour for six weeks. I have been super anxious, but I have been incredibly creative, successful, powering through. And I know at this point how to modulate my anxiety. I love two things you said. One, that it is the challenges you face that have made you exceptional. I have some trauma in my background and my belief is that I might just be average without the trauma. Really? And I really don't want to be average. <laughs> that is so interesting. And and but you've worked on your trauma. Oh yeah. Yeah. Decades of <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> lots of therapy, meditation, healthy diet. I did drink too much for a period of time and I look back on those days and just absent other skills, you go to what you got. You go to what you got. Yeah, me too. Fortunately, I was able to find healthier ways. It takes a very concerted effort. And your point of the conversation, thank you for keeping me alive. Now it's time to take a different role and invite a different part of myself forward. So what does that other healthier view of self feel like? And frankly, things have been going really well for us. And it's weird because I keep thinking like, maybe I'm just missing something. When's the shoe going to (laughs) drop? Getting comfortable with things going well. You know, you'd think it would just be easy, but it's uncomfortable. In fact, let me share a story that happened with my family that only close friends know. My dad was in military intelligence, and so we were always looking for stuff going wrong. They live in a rural area, and kids came up to the door, and they were going to be Christmas caroling. seems like nobody Christmas carols, and nobody Christmas carols on farms. So I'm convinced that something's going on. And like, so I'm going diehard on like this, here are the diehard people. (laughs) My partner, Mike, is, you know, getting ready to get them hot toddies and everything's good. And my dad's so proud that I think these are terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) That leads to a little bit of over-indexing on risk management and a little under-indexing on, why don't we just enjoy the Christmas carolers? They were, in fact, not the diehard crew. They were Christmas carolers. Well, so Maureen, what you just illustrated is hypervigilance, which is really common among trauma survivors and really common among very successful people. And that's what sucks. Mm-hmm. I have a great interview in my book with Jerry Colonna, who's kind of a legendary coach and business guy. And he talks about how the hypervigilance he felt of growing up in a a family with alcoholism and mental illness, you know, always waiting for the door to slam and the dad's coming home. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Was something that carried him into his career as someone who was trend spotting. You're always scanning the horizon for threats and you're always on top of things. You know, you're sort of trying to control and worry so hard that things won't go wrong if I just control and worry and make this not happen. It's very exhausting and very harmful to our mental health, but it is a kind of behavior that is frequently rewarded in entrepreneurship and in corporate America. And that's really tough. I do wonder, as I become much healthier, 
I don't think I'm ever going to be, quote, average, but I may be less vigilant, Hmm. more healthy, less cutting edge. Psychologists would say absolutely not. One of my favorite parts of the book is about perfectionism. Perfectionism is another one of those things that is often rewarded in our society. And a lot of people think it's a good thing. Perfectionism is anxiety. Perfectionism is the anxiety that if I do not perform to a ridiculously high standard that I've set for myself, I'm not worthy. I may not even be worthy of being loved. My favorite psychologist on perfectionism, Thomas Greenspan, says, you are who you are. You would be exceptional. Perfectionism is not about doing amazing work. Perfectionism is the worry that you think needs to accompany amazing work. And so imagine a life where you could just be your exceptional self without the anxiety. It takes a moment to think about, because I've lived in this anxious body since I was a kid, and yoga helps, meditation helps, it's way better. How do you navigate, you're sitting on stage and you have a panic attack, do you share that? Or do you have the internal conversation and hope no one notices? I happen to be an introvert and someone who has social anxiety who absolutely loves being on stage. I am a super ham. It's a very weird, I I can't talk to the moms at the soccer game, but put me on stage in front of a thousand people. I'm good because it's my job. I know how to do my job. Right. So I think there's a lot of people like me. I open the chapter in perfectionism in the book, telling the story of how I was invited to speak for my previous book at our local public library. And I had a panic attack and someone in the library said, call 911. (laughs) (laughs) They thought I was dying. And um, it was not my first rodeo. I knew it was a panic attack. And that doesn't happen to me anymore, but it has happened many times in the past. It has happened to so many of the leaders I have interviewed, so many of the male leaders, and it happens to some of us. And that's okay. We can take medicine. We can get treatment. We can move on. That's why I'm asking if it's happening. In the moment. In the moment. Okay. Let's talk about that. Do you say, like, I need a minute, or can you power through? If someone's going to call 911, you're probably beyond powering through at that moment. You can't. Mm -hmm. And I should say, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to explain this as best I can. And anyone who has been flooded with anxiety knows how this feels. When we are flooded with anxiety and our body enters a physical, almost shock-like state, All the cognitive behavioral therapy in the world, all of the like tricks that you've got is not going to work. And so if this is you, and it could happen in a meeting, I've had it happen to me in a negotiation, you need to take a minute. And as my friend Moshe Cohen calls it, slow down time. You need to slow down time. And how you can do this, depending on the severity of your attack, is to breathe and try to breathe into your belly. Now, if your chest is that tight, you could focus on your heart, connect to your heart and try to breathe in and exhale as long as you can because you're calming your parasympathetic nervous system. Sometimes you need to move. Sometimes you might need to lie down and put your head between your knees. So it's important to try to ask for what you need. But if the panic attack isn't that bad, just breathing and slowing down time, as Moshe says might be okay. And here's the best trick that he has. This is not my idea, but I'm going to share it with you. If you're in a negotiation and this is happening, which is super common, or you're in a conversation or you're, even if you're presenting, throw a question out to the other side, let them talk while you try to get it together. 
or ask for a break. That is okay. I realize when I'm facilitating, there are times my eyes go shut and it looks like I'm having a narcoleptic attack or something. And I do breathe, hope no one notices, and try to make it through that moment. And I hadn't thought of it being panic, but I wonder if it is. It's a physical response. It's a physical response, but it's also because you care, (laughs) because you want to do great for your clients. My friend, Lindsay Pollack, who's a fabulous and famous public speaker, said, you know, the audience is rooting for you. And so it's important to remember that even if you have a wobble, they're there for you. They want you to do a good job. And frankly, she says they're relieved it's not them up there too. (laughs) (laughs) One of my biggest anxiety hacks is turning down the temperature. A lot of us anxious achievers, you know, we put so much emotion and weight in the outcome. We put the stakes up so high that sometimes just turning down the temperature can be super helpful. It is always about care. I want my clients, whether it's a speaking situation or an intense facilitation session where we're navigating some big challenge, I want them to have a positive outcome. Yep. In the midst of a high conflict situation, it is possible to have a pretty bad outcome. It's absolutely possible, right? And that's another challenge is how do we deal with conflict when we are so emotionally invested and we feel it is our responsibility? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a huge life and leadership skill. Let me test my hypothesis that the same tools, that the turning down the temperature and maybe even saying, this is a really tough spot right now and I'm feeling it and I want to navigate forward with care. So what you just illustrated is the famous leadership duo, peanut butter jelly of warmth and competence, right? Okay. What Amy Cuddy has studied and Matthew Neff to great extent is you were warm and you were vulnerable and you acknowledged the anxiety in the room, which is really important because anxiety is super contagious, but you showed that you were holding the environment and that you were competent, you were trustworthy. Mm. And that's what people want. That's beautiful. Yeah. Cause it is always an expression of care at its core. And my assumption is people who are feeling anxious, you've said it's about performance and probably some imposter syndrome and all the soup of negative emotions mixed in with the performance anxiety is I want a good outcome for the precious souls who are in front of me. It's also a habit. That's the thing that's very interesting, right? Is I talk about getting stuck in thought traps and thought traps are an old concept from cognitive behavioral therapy. But, you know, a lot of us go to that imposter syndrome, people pleaser, overwork, space, because that's what we've been doing since we were kids. And we don't know how to do anything else. We can replace that habit with something that is, again, a little bit less high stakes. How do you replace the habit? A simple way to really think about it is that you're stimulated, you're triggered, you're activated. It's a high stakes room. You care. Your clients are in conflict. You're anxious. Your go-to might be to take it all on and to say like, this is all in my hands. That's emotional reasoning. It's a really common thought trap. And what you could do is just literally replace that thought with, this is an anxious room. I'm anxious. I'm a trained professional and I'm going to do the best that I can. I love that acknowledging that it's an anxious room because I'm feeling it. Yeah, they are too. Probably more than I am. And they're not always whoever the they is. 
especially if it's in a conflict negotiation. They may not be naming it because they're so focused on whatever their right outcome is. They may not be naming it because they may not feel that it's anxiety. Mm -hmm. We act out a lot of anxious behaviors through micromanaging, through controlling, through always having to be right. (laughs) And there's gender stuff here and and race. I mean, all the systemic layers are here, depending on how we've been conditioned or how we've grown up or how our mental health literacy is. That's what we do. And we don't connect that to our emotions. I'm just thinking of how impactful you said calming the parasympathetic system with a deep breath. And that being probably the core, if I can do nothing else, it's take a deep breath. And for me, a cup of coffee. (laughs) That's the habit. (laughs) The caffeine may not be solving my problem. That's a great habit. That's a great habit because you're slowing down time. You're centering yourself. I mean... See, look, I'm drinking water now. You do hundreds of book tours. What are the couple of things that you want to absolutely make sure our listeners walk away from this conversation? I want them to know that anxiety is normal, part of life, definitely part of leadership. As people get further and further in their careers, imposter feelings get greater. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is something that every leader deals with. Now, the scope of that anxiety is different for every person based on their temperament and and all the things. I want them to understand that anxiety is trying to tell them something. Anxiety is trying to tell you something. It may not be right. It may be lying to you, but it's signaling something. Often thoughts are are miscues to your point that I may have an anxiety that I'm not good enough and I'm walking into something I've done a hundred or a thousand times. That's a miscue. There's another time it's saying you should really be worried. How do I distinguish that so I'm not running around hypervigilant at Christmas carolers and, <laughs> and not when someone's got a gun in my face? I'm going to give you my completely unscientific answer, which is that maybe some of us can't. Maybe that's just how we're wired. Okay. We have to learn to love ourselves no matter what. But there are ways that you can work on it through therapy, through a spiritual practice, through medication. I think that the question is, how do I learn, as you said, to discern the miscues and the real threats so that my brain is not stuck in cognitive overload all the time, so that my body is not constantly tense. And to me, that's really, really the work of getting professional help and building practices. One of the stats, and we use this in our resilience course, is five minutes of negative thinking causes six hours of physiological impact. Wow. So if I'm anxious, that flood of cortisol and adrenaline, that cocktail is flooding into my physiology. And so it's in part a physiological management process, at least for me. Yeah. Do you use antidotes like gratitude? I heard breathing and talking to the anxiety, and I love both of those. Is there also something where I can think how fortunate I am to be here and have the conversation with that negative voice that really you're okay right now? We've been in front of a crowd and these people in the library are not going to kill me. Research has shown that self-compassion is a really powerful in the moment antidote to that feeling because it involves touch and centering and it involves 
speaking in the anti-inner critic, what you could say in that moment, like, I've done this a thousand times, why am I feeling panicked, which I feel all the time, you know, you can literally put your hand on your sternum and you can try to breathe. Breathing's hard when you're anxious, but try and say, we've done this. People invited us, you know, sometimes I'm like, people are actually paying me to do this. But sometimes that makes me feel more anxious because then I'm like, I'm not worth it, you know, and just say, it's okay. We got this. We got this. The audience is rooting for me, right? Mm. I think that's a really effective practice. And then the other practice, which is part of ACT therapy, which I really love, acceptance and commitment therapy, is hooking into your values. And that's similar to the gratitude. A classic example could be you have flying anxiety and you're sitting on the tarmac preparing to take off and you're like, we're going down. This is it. You could then put your heart on your chest and you could say, you know what? I'm flying today because it's important, because my clients are depending on me, because I value showing up. I value helping people. For me, sometimes I'm just like, I have three children to put through college and that is important to me. And that's why I'm here. And so if you can, having that value system to hook into can also really help the anxiety calm down. It feels like that's connecting to what I was touching on earlier, the I want the best for my clients. Mm -hmm. I'm here truly to make a positive impact. It's a core belief that I do what I do because we need more effective leaders in the world right now. Yeah. The challenge though, is how do you get to a place where it's all that and you don't feel it's your responsibility. It's not a judgment on your self-worth. If things go south, the boundaries piece, I mean, boundaries is such a cliche at this point, but the boundaries piece is really important for your mental health. It's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you'd have the answer. (laughs) Part of it is having people around me who remind me. So one of the things we do with our team is we do a daily intentions text. What is my state of being? What am I focusing on? And then what are my tasks? But there's a big piece, and our listeners have possibly not met Dan, our producer, who's sitting on the call with us. Um, But Dan and I have this text conversation every day, because what's the bigger piece behind why we're doing what we're doing? You know, the daily tasks are the daily tasks. And sometimes they're exciting. And sometimes they're dull. You know, I'm writing emails, I'm editing something, but there's a core connection. And Dan, and another person on our team, often remind me, you know, the mental state is you don't own this. Mm. This one's not yours. You get to help. But Christy, one of our other collaborators on this text exchange, will often say boundaries. I love it. This is why I believe that understanding your emotions, what makes you tick, what sets you off, what your bad habits are in terms of acting out your anxiety is so crucial to good leadership. Because imagine if you didn't have a team who could tell you that which so many people do not. Imagine if you if you never heard that and you just were super controlling and never let anyone do anything and drove everyone up the wall, which so many bosses do. 
if we could get in touch with this stuff, work would be much less toxic. Well, and I am encouraging and and just because of what we're doing and that it is helpful, and I'm not militant. There are certainly days I haven't texted in the morning, but I do it in the afternoon. I do encourage our clients to do the same thing because we're not in the office. We don't walk down the hall and bump into each other. Yeah. For us, this is the equivalent of the five-minute stand-up, but it's not just these are the tasks that are on my plate. It's the deeper what's going on in my inner conversation, that having a supportive team is huge. I don't know that you were truly asking the question, but what would happen is I would be spinning in a way that would be not supportive for me and consequently not for my clients if somebody wouldn't say occasionally, you're over-invested here. Yeah boundaries. That's the only word that needs to come back in the text is boundaries. So how do we support people who are periodically truly suffering with anxiety? My husband often says to me, and we've been married 16 or 17 years, and he says to me sometimes, you know, it took me like a good decade to understand that your anxiety was really intense and present and really hard for you because A, he wasn't someone who grew up with a lot of mental health literacy and B, like, that's not his issue. I think one of the things that we can all do at work is get educated, much as we do with DEI, get educated so that you can, if this is not your thing, try to have compassion. And then at work, it's really, really important to have a conversation in the organization about this, try to do the best you can in supporting people with benefits, with access, and really try to think about mentally healthy management practices, which, spoiler alert, are the same management practices that are going to make people happy no matter what, because of course, our mental health and our work are so deeply intertwined. Your podcast, you interview people who share their stories, right? Mm -hmm. So I would strongly encourage people to listen to the stories. I realize there's a difference between I hear someone talk about it and I experience it, but it seems like listening to you would be almost a required study, not just reading the book. It's one thing to hear president whomever was anxious. It's another to hear my next door neighbor's also anxious. Yeah. How do I walk through the world post-COVID where... We're seeing people shooting each other on the interstate in Columbus, Ohio. That used to happen in D.C. and L.A., not Columbus, Ohio. How do we help people de-escalate? Because often that one extra thing, they got cut off in traffic, is now thrown them over the edge. Or someone cut in line in the grocery store, and that used to be annoying but not grounds for bad behavior. It's really rampant. We are a country in crisis My podcast is actually taught in business schools and it's homework. I I had a friend who said, my therapist assigned me your podcast. (laughs) The point is that we need to tap into our common humanity and we're so bad at that. The second half of your term, anxious achiever, achievers are just rushing through the day just to get the stuff done. I've got more to do than I have hours in the day. And it would be nice if I could take time to slow down and understand But that means I'm either giving up an hour of sleep or something, or I have to figure out how to multitask and listen in the shower. So there's also a value of compassion and humanity that seems so crucial as we're sharing neighborhoods and highways and communities with ourselves first and our families 
and then with the precious souls who are also struggling, and we don't always take time to take a breath and think, I wonder what they're going through. Instead, we say, that idiot, I wish they would speed up on the highway. Not they're also dealing with a child in the back seat who's screaming. Absolutely. Maura, thank you so much. Where would people find your podcast, find your books, learn more about you and your work? You can find my podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can get my book wherever you get your books. <laughs> <laughs> so the name of your podcast? Is The Anxious Achiever. And the name of my book is The Anxious Achiever. And if you want to ask me a question or connect with me, just come find me on LinkedIn. I promise I'll write you back. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In a time of mental health issues, this is so crucial. Thanks, Maureen. And to our listeners, please take care of yourself. Mm-hmm.